Hi, I'm John Moscow. This is a reposting of an interview with Lev Moscow, who has taught history and economics at the Beacon School in New York City for 14 years. Lev offers advice for secondary school teachers on topics such as advisory, including non-European perspectives in the history curriculum, and getting students to read more than a few sentences. To make clips from our episodes easier to use in teacher education classes and professional development presentations, we've started to provide transcripts and overviews on our website, ethicalschools.org. We hope you enjoy this episode and wish you a good break, if you have one, and a happy new year. I'm John Moscow. And I'm Amy Helper Laugh. Welcome to Ethical Schools, where we discuss strategies for creating inclusive and equitable schools and youth programs that help students to develop both commitment and capacity to build ethical institutions. Our guest today is Lev Moscow. Lev teaches history and economics at the Beacon School, a public high school in New York City, where he has taught for 14 years. He is the host of A Correction Podcast, an economics and politics-focused podcast with over 6,000 listeners a month, originally designed to support high school economics teachers, but now reaching a much larger audience. He is also my son. Welcome, Lev. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Happy to be here. Lev, we want to talk to you today, especially about advice that you would give new and relatively new teachers, especially in secondary schools, things they might want to be thinking about this time of year. Mm -hmm. You've said that you think most schools don't teach advisory well. What is advisory and what should a good advisory look like? Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm not sure the numbers of, you know, how many schools are doing advisory. I know that advisory is a key component of, of most small high schools um, and certainly the consortium schools in, in New York. Um, in what, my what are the consortium? I'm sorry, what are the consortium schools left? Yeah, so the consortium, I think it's about 30 high schools in the city that have the waiver from the New York State history regions. And they may have a waiver from for another regions as well. Um, there are a few regions tests that consortium schools still have to offer the kids. But basically, in, instead of giving the kids tests, we give the kids what are called uh, PBAs or performance-based assessments. So students have to write, it, it, mostly in, it, at Beacon, kids are writing a, a substantial research paper each year and they then have to defend this paper or defend their thesis to, to two different adults. And, and it can be teachers at Beacon or they can actually be teachers from outside of Beacon or they can be members of the community. But in any case, the, the New York State Regents says that this is equivalent to having uh, the kids take an exam. So at, at all the consortium schools, and I imagine... Um, probably hundreds of schools in New York and, and probably thousands of schools across the country do advisory as well. And the idea is that students come in in the ninth grade and they have a, you know, a homeroom once a week, or twice a week, a beacon it's once a week now, for an hour. And we stay with those kids for four years. And we are advisors, we are advocates, we're their teachers. So we do, we do health and advisory. It's a place for kids to check in. But um, yeah, I think advisory could be, could be something really exciting when it's done well. Most of the time, 
the teachers are just looking for uh, an, an hour to do grading. I mean, we're, we're so overwhelmed that most teachers don't, in my experience, don't use advisory well, and the kids like it because they can hang out with their friends or catch up on homework. But I, but I think that that approach, you know, if, we're, if, the, if the idea of today's show is to talk to young teachers or new teachers, I think that approach is wrong. I, I think taking advisory seriously um, can make a huge difference in the kids' lives. And, and I've now seen fourth group of kids, fourth, fourth, I think, and I've gotten better at advisory each year or each, each, each time around. And it can be, you know, we, we read books together. We going through the college process instead of trying to figure out, you know, how do we do a little bit of like, you know, how do you write a good college essay? But a lot of it is about talking about and reading about the point, the point of going to college, whether you need to go to a name brand school and whether you need to go to private school and we can do college visits together. So, I mean, there's, there's some really wonderful things you can do with the kids. And I, I, I think for in my experience, the last two years, the advisor has been the best hour of the week for me and, and my senses for many of the kids who are in the advisory. And, and a lot of that is just, you know, we're reading, we're reading books together. And it may be the, the only time that teachers get a chance to do that with the kids, with their students. So do you design your advisory the same way that you design a course that you sort of say, okay, this is where I want to go this semester or this year. And these are the books or the kind of books I want to read or the kind of activities I want to be engaged in. Yes. So a couple of years ago, I found a book. This just, I was taking over someone's advisory. Um, so I was, I was getting 11th graders and this is at Beacon. This is when they start to prepare for the college process. And I read a wonderful book. I found it in a, in a museum bookshop, actually, in Amsterdam, but it was, it was called The Age of Absurdity. And it was basically a philosophy book, but um, written in a way that I, I thought that teenagers would like. And so I took it back um, to, to New York with me, and in the fall, we started the book together. And a, a lot of what he's talking about in the book is applicable to the college process. He's, a, he's an older guy, so he's writing about career success and how even if you find career success, it's not going to guarantee that you'll find personal happiness. And, and so, so, so much of that was relevant for them. And these kids, you know, I work at a school that's, it's a, it's an elite public school, um, whatever that means, but I mean, it's hard to get to, that's what I should say. And so these kids kind of have experienced that where they've worked very, very hard for the first eight years of their academic lives. And then they get into the school and it's kind of like, uh, you know, it's like the, the name of that Strokes album, which is like, this is it. Like, and, and they expect something great to happen and, and they find that sort of life continues more or less the same. And that can be disappointing for kids. But once they get into a, a prestigious high school now, you know, the next thing is to get into a prestigious college and get a, a well-paying job. And so the book was, was great because he, he talks about sort of how to find real source of happiness. But um, he uses philosophy, both Eastern and Western philosophy, to, to get at this answer. And then the next book we read was um, a book called Excellent Sheep, which was written by a uh, former Yale professor, I think, of literature, and he was talking about the sheep were, were the Yale students and, um, and what college was like today and, and what ne neoliberal education looks like. And so that was, that was how I prepared the kids to start thinking about college. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure I would do it again, but we had a lot of fun reading those books. So yeah, I, I, it's a little bit different than I would normally approach 
a course. Maybe I'm experimenting a little bit more in advisory than I would in a course. So yeah, but so maybe there's a little more freedom too in advisory. One of the things that has changed dramatically in the last couple of decades is the ubiquity of technology in students' lives and in schools. What do you see as the best approaches for schools to technology? And by technology, really mm. mean all aspects of technology from you know, computers, cell phones, and so forth. My, my basic approach is that the bringing electronic technology into the classroom, I mean, because you know, pencils are technology too, right? I mean, but bringing electronic technology into the classroom isn't going to solve any problems that already exist in the classroom. In other words, if, if you've got, if the teacher is not prepared or not a very good teacher or doesn't have control of the classroom um, or learning's not taking place, bringing computers in is not gonna solve that. That's not to say that computers can't be very valuable if you, if you have a well-designed course and if, if you've got a very specific task that you want to accomplish. I think, you know, more and more kids bring computers in to type notes. And we had a, a meeting today with, with a couple of new history teachers in my department. And the advice that a couple of us gave who have been there, for, been in school teaching for a while, is that unless the kids have an IEP that says that they need to use the computers for note taking, I don't allow it. Because what mostly happens is that the kids are, you know, and I understand the, the attraction, but um, they, they're not able to, to not have three or four tabs open and, and search the web while, while class is, is going on. Uh, I, you know, I had this experience going to, to graduate school. I had to take some, in 2004, some undergraduate, graduate classes that were mixed. And I was in a class with mostly undergrads and there was this incredible professor, but you look around and you see everybody's laptops open and everybody's on, you know, ESPN or, or something else. So they're not, they're not really listening to the lecture. And I think that happens in, in our school as well. So I discourage computers in the class and, and I'm on the lookout for, for kids who are on their phones. And, and you have to be really vigilant about that. Um, some teachers have the kids write, write notes on their phones even or look stuff up. But I think it's too. I think it's too tempting, and it's too difficult for the kids um, not to not to get super distracted by them. So Neil Postman writes is a wonderful book called Technopoly, where he talks about the uses of of technology and the, the abuses. And, and one of the things he says is that technology is not additive. It's it, it creates an ecological change. So you don't have, for example, at home, you decide to get a a new television, you don't have your home, your old home plus a TV. What you have is a completely new home. So the cell phone in the classroom is not the classroom plus a cell phone. It's an entirely different classroom. So, and, and the technology is not neutral. One way to see technology is that, you know, it, you can use it as you like. I think that technologies all have, all have biases. Lev, if we could go back to advisory for a second. Sure. Um, if you have the same class for four years, I would think that you develop some pretty significant relationships with the, the students and that they would develop relationships with one another. Could you address that a little bit? 
if you do it right, and I've done it wrong. You know, when I first started, I, my advisory um, wasn't, I didn't do a very good job, particularly with the younger students. And I don't, I, with the ninth graders, I, and I'm going to take, I'm going to get a new group of ninth graders this year. And I'm a little nervous about it. But yes, if it's done well, you can develop very strong relationships with the kids. And it's, it's, it's wonderful. Um, many of my advisees eat lunch in my, in my room and are writing me from college right now. I mean, they, they just arrived at school and they're sending emails and they develop close relationships with each other. But I think it takes, it takes a lot of thought and a lot of planning to, to do it well. So advisory really could be this incredible thing, but um, a lot of it requires us just doing professional development uh, on our own and reading on our own and growing as, as people and teachers. But it's incredibly difficult. I want to go back technology question again. You said something really interesting that the technology changes the ecology of, of the situation, whether it's a home or a classroom or whatever. So I guess it's almost a two-part question, but, but they're connected. So given that we're definitely in a technology age, do you see, and also you said that you think that one of the key issues is getting students to read deeply. Do you see schools necessarily being on the defensive? Do you see yourself fighting almost a rearguard battle for the importance of print, whether it's on a screen or on the pages of a book or a magazine or journal? And that, that's sort of question number one. Question number two is, do you see sort of a, if it's a dialectic process of thesis, antithesis, synthesis, can you foresee some kind of a synthesis with technology that ends up in a more positive place rather than it only being an issue of kids or adults for that matter being distracted and being short, short attention spans and so forth? So broadly speaking, I mean, I'll address the second question first. Broadly speaking, I'm, I'm pretty pessimistic about it. And I think, so I, I, I would say, no, I, I can't really, maybe the most, I don't know if this totally answers the question, but where I see technology being useful, you, know, I, you and I do this a lot when, when we're at dinner, when we're talking about something in the news and we don't know the answer, you say, let's, let's look it up. And I, I think actually that can be really great. And so you've got this very powerful computer in your pocket, which, which you can find out you know, sort of factual answers very quickly. And that, I think that's really positive. But as far as a positive, overall positive synthesis, I, I, I'm pretty pessimistic. To go, to go back to the first question, yeah, I think that we are, we're, you know, the cat's out of the bag, the toothpaste is out of the tube. I mean, I think that we're not going back to a print culture and we can encourage the kids. I mean, I think that's actually a big part of our job is to get the kids off the screens and get the kids to read, to read books. Coming into teaching, I, as, as a history teacher, I, I sort of, this goes back to Dewey, but you know, he, I remember reading, first time I, I read anything by Dewey, he, he said something like, look, there are two goals of the history teacher. The first is to, to get students to read the newspaper, and the second is to get them to vote or participate in the democracy. That was my objective coming in teaching and it still is I'd add a third component which would be getting them to read books and I think that when you know going back to this the point of technology having each technology has its own bias and, and the ecological change that happens when you introduce a new technology and you can you can look at what's happened with the introduction of television you can look at the number of TVs that Americans own and you can look at the political 
the state of political discourse in the country. And people complain a lot about, you know, the soundbite society. And this is actually not a value judgment on conservative um, ideology. The conservative arguments are, are simpler. And that's not, I'm not saying they're worse, but, you know, Senator, do you agree with affirmative action or not? And, you know, yes or no. And the more complex argument tends to be the arguments that are on the left, which is, well, what do you mean? What do you mean by affirmative action? Do you mean if your father went to Harvard, you get to go to Harvard? No, Senator, just answer the question in one word. And so I think that that technology, the technology of television, works for conservatives much better than it does for, for people on the left. And, and I don't think it's a coincidence that conservatives are, are thriving in an environment where you have sound bites. I think it's much more difficult. I mean, the, only, the kind of liberals or people on the left that do well are people like Bernie Sanders, who've been able to distill the message into the 99% versus the 1%. And that's really simplistic. And, and I think it works to a certain extent, but I think it's overly simplistic. I know this sounds like a digression, but you know, Warren has complex policy arguments. I think she's, she's going to have trouble. She's already having, she has trouble now getting those policies down to one sentence. So the technology of television, I think, is, is a huge boon for, for conservative politics. If you look at the classroom, I think a lot of what we do in the classroom reproduce and the kids reproduce, obviously, what's going on in the larger culture. So a lot of what's happening in the classroom is that we are using screens, we're dedicating substantial proportion of of the class time to watching videos, whether it's from Vox or, or the New York Times, to keep the kids' attention. It's a struggle to get the kids to read in the class. And so most, most of what we do now, I, I would say a lot of the, the deep reading that we're doing, we do it together. Like if I have a, if a homework assignment where we've got a, a reading from a book that I think even 10 years ago, the kids could have read on their own. If you give the kids this book at night, to go, to go read and then come back the next day and 90% of them can't do it. And so you've got to read with them and, and they find it to be really helpful, but the literacy skills are much lower. And I think that's in no small part due to technology. And what are your students when they come back uh, after they've graduated and gone on to college? And of course, there's a whole range of different colleges, but is college replicating high school in this sense? Or do the kids find it all of a sudden you know, they've got to be doing the long form reading. No, I, I think it's worse in college. And so I think in the humanities, it's worse because there you don't, by and large, you don't have homework that you have to turn in every day. You're just expected to read, you know, a few chapters a week or a book a week, but nobody's checking on that. So you'll have a midterm, a final, and you may have one paper. But the kids who come back from college say it's way easier and they're spending lots of their time in clubs or hang out with friends and and that's true in the humanities. Now, again, I think if you're in the hard sciences, if you're in the natural sciences, if you're in math, if you're in STEM, I think it's harder, it's harder to BS your way through. But lots of our kids come back and say that the, they work much harder in high school. The other thing is in high school, we're contacting the parents if the kids aren't doing well. Nobody's contacting your parents in college if you're, if you're sloughing off. So, so I, think it's, it's, I think it's worse at most colleges. And I had some experience teaching the university level in Florence, in Italy, we had uh, American students who come over and you know, they would study abroad. And I did that for three years. And it was tough because I wanted to keep getting rehired. And so you want the kids to write nice evaluations. Really, they really are your customers. And so 
there's great inflation and the professors aren't going to come down hard on, on the students. So yeah, I, I would say um, the situation's more terrifying and, and, and worse at college. Really? Well, you mentioned homework. I mean, what do you see as the role of homework in high school? I'm rethinking it. Most of the, the studies say that it doesn't, it doesn't really help. And, you know, the way to think about it is imagine you worked an eight-hour day and then had to come home and do another four or five hours of work at home. And obviously lots of professionals do that, but it's, you know, it's not a good life. And the kids, you know, I, I saw this op-ed the other day in the Times. It was about teenage suicide. And students are, the kids are much more likely to kill themselves during the school year, whereas adults are more likely to kill themselves in the summer. Teenagers are more likely to kill themselves during the school year. And, and part of what the author was saying is that there's just too much stress. And so I started teaching in 2005, and I, I'd say for the first 10 years, I had a reputation for giving lots of homework. And part of it was I wanted the kids to read because I didn't trust that if they weren't reading, if they weren't doing homework, they, they wouldn't be doing reading otherwise. I, I now don't give any homework on the weekends and never give homework on over breaks. And I try to limit it to... And this may sound like a lot, um, but to, to no more than 45 minutes a night. But it, it goes back to the other thing I was saying about, I actually think that the literacy skills are so low. And again, I'm at an elite public high school. They're so low that it doesn't actually make a lot of sense to give them even a 10-page reading from a, a nonfiction book or from a history book. I think a lot of that has to be done in class. So for homework, I, I might give them um, some questions to answer from the stuff that we've done in class or perhaps uh, listen to a podcast. But I'm really cognizant of the fact that the kids are, are, these kids that I'm working with are stressed out. Now, there's another thing that's going on is that a lot of kids who are in public school are not getting any work at all and are not being challenged at all. And so you have these two very, at least two very different school systems, one being high pressure and the other one being no pressure and they coexist side by side. And that's certainly true here in New York City. And when I talk to friends who are history teachers at uh, other schools, at, at low-performing schools, they're, they're not giving any homework at all, and, and the kids are, are not being challenged at all. And that's problematic in its, own, in its own way. You talked about one of your reasons for giving a lot of homework when you were was that you wanted the kids to read. What about writing? What do you have your kids do? And I know that you have, you mentioned the PPAs, the performance-based assessments. But do you see students writing at home? Is that a legitimate function of homework, and, and does it work? It is, it, is a, it is a legitimate function of homework. There are lots of ways that you could have kids write. So obviously, you could have the kids write essays. You can have them write argumentative essays or historiographies, which we do a lot of. Uh, would you describe, define what you mean by historiography? Well, for example, you could write a historiography on the causes of World War I and what you would look at in that paper. So let's compare that to a, a paper on the French Revolution, which would be uh, what are the three major causes of the French Revolution? And, and in that paper, you maybe have 16 causes that we've looked at and you pick the three most important and you'd argue for those three. And then you'd have a section with a counter argument saying some people say it's this other thing, but actually it's not that. And that's, your, that's a standard paper that, that a lot of schools have kids do, and it's a very valuable thing to have kids do. The historiography is the kind of thing that you, you, know, you usually wouldn't get to until college and maybe even grad school, but I'm really excited that we do it in our history department. And what that would be, let's say you took the World War I paper, 
he would say, look, even in 1914 and 1915, um, there were already historians writing histories of the beginning of, of the causes of the war. And, you know, you had British historians saying, it's not our fault, it's the Germans' fault, or it's Austria-Hungary. It was a way to actually convince British people that they were on the right side and also to get people to join the army. Um, and then after the war, clearly when you're talking about Versailles, you want to make sure that the British and the French, you know, the governments themselves put a lot of money and resources into supporting their historians, which would say it's all Germany's fault. So, of course, you could write, you know, Article 231 saying it's all Germany's fault and Germany would pay reparations. 1960s, you have like the Fisher thesis. That's this guy, Fritz Fisher in Germany, who says, actually, it, you know, what Hitler did in 1939 wasn't all that different than what the Germans were doing in 1914, and it's all the Germans' fault. Anyway, so you look, you look at arguments through, through the lens of the dominant debates during dis discrete time periods. That, that'd be history. So these are two different, these are different kinds of writing assignments that you might mm -hmm. have kids do. Yeah, and, 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 but on a nightly basis, so those are big projects, but on a, a nightly basis, you could have, I don't know what book it came from, from Neil Postman, but somewhere in Neil Postman's writings, he talks about what should be happening in a, in a classroom every day are three things. Students should be able to summarize what they're reading or what they're listening to or what they're watching. They should be able to, that's the S, they should be able to reflect and respond to. So here's the R they should be able to reflect or respond to what they've read, make connections even to other things that they've read, and then questions. They should be able to formulate questions. So that's what we're called SRQ. And it actually helps to, when you're developing lessons to be thinking, like at what point in the period is the kid doing the, the summarizing? At what point are they doing the reflecting? And at what point are they writing questions, deep questions about what they read or what they've listened to? And then Postman says that it's actually the, the question part, which is the most difficult because, sorry, and the reason I'm talking about this is because this is the kind of writing they could be doing every night. And you could have them do an SRQ every night where it's a one paragraph, one paragraph, and two or three questions, or they could just do the reflection part at night. But this is a really valuable tool to have in the tool belt. And what Postman would say is that really the goal, he'd add on to a Dewey, because you know, I think he's really excited about Dewey too, but you'd add on, the, the, the other goal is not just to get the kids to read the newspaper and to, to vote, but also to, to question everything and to develop really good questions. There's a wonderful activity that I also stole from, from Postman, and I, I used to do it when I taught freshmen. When I, what I would do is on the first day of school, I'd come in with a briefcase. It'd be a fancy leather briefcase. I, 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 it was actually my grandfather, your dad's, that's your dad. Briefcase. And I would tell the kids that in this briefcase was a super powerful computer that was given to us by Stanford University. And we have a special relationship with Stanford and they lend us this computer. And I'm very delicate with the bag because the computer is, is oh, it costs more than a million dollars. And the cool thing about this computer is that you can ask it any question you want. And so why don't you guys write down three or four questions that you have for the computer? And you know, the kids write down silly things, they're, they're freshmen. But you know, some of the questions are like, where do I live? Or how far is it from the earth to the moon? And, and what I say is, no, no, these questions are, it costs $10,000 for the computer to generate the answer to each question. So let's not do those questions because we can just look those questions up and we can find out really easily where you live. Let's think of deeper questions that we can't just Google. And but what you're trying to do is that when you ask a kid, for example, to generate a question from the reading. You know, a lot of times the kids will write 
questions. And the answer is like, you can find the answer on page 72 in the reading, because that's what their textbooks do. But you're absolutely not trying to get the kids to ask those kind of questions. You know, I, I think I called the computer like the blue wave computer or something. And then what you're able to do for the rest of the year is to say, okay, tonight for homework, what I want you to do is read these three pages, or maybe we read the three pages in class, come up with two blue wave quality questions. And they know what that means. And what's kind of cool about it is on the first day, you put up all the questions the kids have, and then you can tell the kids, hey, maybe you can help me erase some of these or strike a line through some of these because they're... They're questions we could easily look up on Google. And then the kids are like, they can identify which questions are not great questions. And then we start, you know, we spend half the first class just erasing questions and coming up with better versions of the questions. So I think that the SRQ, to go back to your original question about what kind of writing is quality writing, the SRQ is a, a really good kind of assignment. When you're talking about questions, I guess our perspective at ethical schools would be that most of these questions have ethical implications. Mm -hmm. Do you use the language of ethics? I don't know if you guys are, are familiar with, with Tony Jew. Do you guys know Tony Jew? I do. You've given me any number of Tony Jude's books. Okay. So he passed away a few years ago. He was a historian at NYU. He was a historian of European history. And I encourage everybody to to Google this, he, he's got a, a, his last lecture at NYU. And it's, it's called something like, what's, what's living in social democracy? And he talks about the, the birth of social, social democracy in Europe after the war, and then the decline of social democracy, and then to what's left of it is his question. And what he says is, the questions that we ask, let's say about, about healthcare. I teach a, a 12th grade political economy class, and we, we talk about the economics of healthcare. What he says is that for the last 35 or 40 years, really since the Reagan and Thatcher revolution, we've all become little neoliberals. Like we, we all ask the question, how are we going to pay for that? And so it's, you know, when we talk about healthcare, we've all become technocrats. And it's like, well, you know, this system is, is cheaper than that system. And rather than asking the, the moral question of, is it right or is it just to have a country that doesn't provide healthcare for all of its citizens. What he says is we need to start thinking less like economists and more, more ethically. And, and he talks about morals. We were sort of afraid, I certainly as a public school teacher, we're afraid to talk about morals often because I think we get, the, we get morality confused with religion. And this might be my conservative side coming out, but I think also the 60s, maybe one of the, the bad effects of the 60s was that we've come to reject authority, we've come to reject explicit morality, and we don't expect to see it in schools anymore. I think there's a real role for adults to talk to kids about morality, to think about how we could live in a more just and humane and moral way. That actually, to go back to circle back to the advisory question, that's what we could be doing in advisory. But I also think that there's a role for it in all of our classes. And I don't mean to say that we should impose our own morality, but I do think that you've got to have those conversations. You know, it's interesting. I'm going to, um, as somebody who lived through the 60s, I'm going to, you know, I want to take you up on that. Yeah. It seems to me that what people, and, and I think it's very possible, as with so many other things, that the lessons, if you will, of the 60s have been misinterpreted. Mm -hmm. 
in many cases deliberately, because I think that what people were rejecting, I mean, for example, the slogan question authority was that it was questioning illegitimate authority. It was questioning authority that had been proven to be a bunch of lies. You know, I was in my 20s and we were in the process of discovering that virtually everything we'd been told, and of course it was things like the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement and the women's movement and then the gay movement and so forth that just, you know, like peeling an onion, one thing after another that we'd grown up with as revealed truth turned out not to be true. Mm -hmm. And in many cases, deliberately not to be true. So I think that in fact, we were raising moral questions. That's exactly what we wanted. Yeah. And we wanted those conversations based on morality. But it could very well be that since the society as a whole, especially as it went into a more conservative mode, and that's threatening to any society, you know, any established order, that it was much easier to just translate that into um, sort of a rejection of, or to say that it was about a rejection of, of wisdom or of listening to people and so on. Yeah. But that's just, you know, I mean, that's, it's just another way of looking at it. Yeah, no, I think you're right. Um, and, and I think to go back, I think the question of what is a legitimate, what is legitimate authority is a great new wave kind of question. And I think even having that kind of question as a, a question for a whole unit, posing that as a question will allow you to talk about morality in a, in a really rich way, in a way that, it, again, it, it doesn't mean you imposing your vision. Right. But I do, I do think where we are, and I think what's dangerous is that, and it makes sense how we got here, but you know, I think you look at someone like the president and he, and also people like Putin, they depend on, on large parts of the population being really skeptical of any kind of truth. They thrive on this idea that there is no such thing as, as truth. And if you, you, know, if you talk to the kids at, at my school, I'd say the vast majority of them believe that we can't ever talk about truths. And I think that's scary. And I think it also, there's no way you can, you can talk about ethics and what so, is ethical if you, don't, if you don't have established truths, if you, if you don't believe that there can be such things as truth. But isn't the, I mean, it seems to me that part of what existentialism was about after World War II was where, you know, all the established methods of thought had sort of been totally discredited and that what the existentialists and there are tremendous similarities between what someone like Sartre and someone like Dewey was saying is that you have to, in some ways you have to create your own truth, but that that truth has to be, it does have to be based on morality. You, you may have to create your own sense of morality because it isn't coming down, you know, from Mount Sinai, 10 commandments, that at the root, there has to be a fundamental respect for things, as Dewey would phrase it, in terms of democracy, in terms of human dignity, in terms of the kinds of things that the UN put into the Declaration of Human Rights. I mean, if what you're saying is that there has to be an underlying sense of morality, um, I would agree completely. I'm not sure, and I'm not sure that you'd be saying that there is a single truth that, that is sort of waiting out there to be discovered. No, I'm not saying that. What I'm actually saying is that, not a single truth, but I'm saying lots of young people, maybe older people too, don't believe that we can ever talk about truths. Even to say that this event happened, there's such skepticism. I think it's difficult if you're asking kids, I mean, I think we're in a pretty 
difficult situation right now as a culture to ask kids to, to somehow formulate their, their own roadmap for life and to come up with their own set of morals. They've got to look somewhere. And I don't know, know without organized religion where they look. Now, they might look to something like the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights. Again, there are people, though, who say that that's, that's a form of, of Western imperialism. The rights laid down by the UN are, are rights that have been laid down by the powers after World War II. So, I, yeah, go ahead. Stop. Yeah, no, that actually leads into sort of a last question, at least for me, which mm -hmm. is one of your history courses is, you know, teaching from the Enlightenment to the present. How do you decenter Europe in that course? And of course, that also does tie into the questions of you were just raising about values and which values yeah. you know, came from Europe, which values came from elsewhere, come from elsewhere. How do you do that? I mean, this is a really relevant question because the, as, as far as I understand in New York State, the regions is, for history is, a, a tenth, is the 10th grade global regions. And that really is everything after, I think, 1492. And what that means that a lot of the history is going to be about the rise of Europe and the rise of the West. Because before the 15th century, it, it was China and India where um, you had the most dynamic economies and, and, the, and the most wealth. So even that policy tends to put more of the emphasis, because, you know, and schools have to pass the region, so there's more of an emphasis on that history. So how, given the fact that we have to teach uh, that in 10th grade, you know, and I'm basically starting with the Renaissance and Reformation and focusing in a big way on the Enlightenment, yeah, like how do you teach the Enlightenment and the post-Enlightenment in, in a non-Eurocentric way? And I, I think... I think the way you do it is you don't shy away from the fact that Europe is ascendant, but you, you talk about the, the whys, and a large part of, of the why is that Europeans are engaged in, in the slave trade, and they're using that trade to, to fuel the Industrial Revolution. And it's never that you teach your European history in, in an isolated way, but you're talking about the ways that Europeans are interacting um, with Africans and with indigenous people here in the Americas and with Asians. And so, for example, the, the longest unit in, in my 10th grade class is on the Haitian Revolution. So we do a unit on, on the Enlightenment and so forth. And then we do the French Revolution, which is obviously well, it's the second big Enlightenment revolution after the American Revolution. And then, and then the Haitian Revolution, which is the third big Enlightenment revolution. And you can talk about the contradiction in the French Revolution and the French revolutionaries in the way that they write about or think about Haiti about, and the revolution that's going on in Saint-Domingue. And, and then the project really does become uh, a month looking at, at Haiti, not just up until 1804 when Haiti becomes independent, but then looking at post-independence and the kids... The kids are able to focus in on, there's a bunch of events that they can choose from an event in, from 1804 to the present in Haiti, and then they come up with questions that they want to ask experts that they can't, that they've done research, but they have questions, these blue wave quality questions, and then they actually have to go and interview uh, a professor or an expert in Haitian history and record that interview and create a website. And they, what they do is they actually create a resource bank on Haitian history, on specific parts of Haitian history for other scholars and for the students who come 
or 10th graders the next year to be able to use their research and build on it. So Haiti is a big part of the year, the Haitian Revolution. Looking at the Congo is a big part of the year. And then when we look at the Cold War, the Cold War is not a Cold War for most of the world. If you look at the Cold War from the perspective of the United States or the Soviet Union, yeah, it's not a hot war. But if you look at the global South, there are dozens of hot wars taking place from 1945 to, you know, 89. So what you can do, what, what we do is we have the kids at the end of the year. So the last project, they, they're looking at a, a hot war during the Cold War. And, and it can be anywhere in the global South. And they are finding a movie about that then. And then they are finding historians who've written about how accurate the film is. Then hopefully they find a second historian who's writing in an academic journal who makes, you know, maybe has a different perspective on how accurate the film is. And then they present, you know, a bit of the film. They talk about the Cold War conflict. So there are lots and lots of ways to talk about the global South, to center the global South. I mean, in a lot of ways, modernity is the global South reacting to, responding to the Enlightenment project. Wow. That's a really fascinating way of looking at it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lev, and thank you, listeners, for joining us. You can find Lev's podcast at acorrectionpodcast.com, and we'll link it to ours as well. You can check out our podcast episodes and articles at our website, ethicalschools.org. We're on Facebook, Twitter, at Ethical Schools, and Instagram. Till next week.